Okay. Good luck. We are now doing Sunday's portion of Chaye Sarah. So the, if you remember, the last thing of the portion of Shabbos, of the previous Parsha, was the long and very significant situation of the final test of Abraham's ten tests, Akedas Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, where Abraham was tested to think that God wanted him to sacrifice Isaac as an offering, which God didn't want. God does not want human sacrifice. And Abraham had spent his whole life preaching that God doesn't want human sacrifice because human sacrifice was a very in thing among all the idolaters of Abraham's time. And yet Abraham transcended the message he had been giving for all of his life, and he was 120, 137 at this time, because this is what he now thought. Deliberately God fooled him for the test to be God's will. So this test was crucial and critical and really intense. Abraham had to go against his own nature. His nature is kindness. He had to be the opposite. He had to sacrifice his son. All of his other tests were basically sacrificing himself. To sacrifice your child is a totally different level, dimension, than sacrificing yourself. He had to actually view this as, as good news because if he viewed it as bad news, he wouldn't even be allowed to do it. There were levels and levels and levels of the intensity of this test, and he got up early in the morning and ran to do this with joy. This is God's will. This is what I want. I don't want it. Everything inside of me is screaming. I don't want it because I mirror God, and God doesn't want it either. But I think this is what God wants. He fooled me to think this is what he wants. So even though everything inside of me is saying, no, 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 I'm doing this with joy. This is God's will. So at that point, the test is passed. Amazing. We still live off the merit of it every day. The first thing we say in our prayers is reminding God of the enormous merit of this test. Because God still sees that the ashes of Isaac, so to speak. I mean, he was never burned, but he sees those ashes every day and they atone for us. Ten tests are in their merit. We have the ten days of repentance. We have so much that happens constantly to this day in the merit of these enormous tests that Abraham passed. But there was a human sacrifice there. And the human sacrifice was actually Sarah. As we're about to learn now, this portion, which is called Chaye Sarah, which means the life of Sarah, begins with Sarah's passing. It actually happened to pass at the same moment. It says the Satan came to her disguised as whatever. I was sort of giving her blow by blow what was happening. Oh, he sees this, he sees this, he sees this, building it up, building it up, building it up. And then, oh, he's spared. You know, he's taken off the altar. And the, the shock of that, of course, the Satan did this deliberately, was so much for her heart, her human heart, that she passed away which Kabbalistically is explained that a death was needed and it was hers. She also sacrificed herself as part of this. So the portion begins. Sarah's lifetime was 100 years and 20 years and 7 years, the years of Sarah's life. And Rashi comments like the Torah doesn't waste words. Why would the scripture write 100 years and 20 years and 7 years? should have said Sarah's life was 127 years. So each one is separated. So Rashi says, when she was 100, she was like 20 in terms of purity of sin because just as until 20, most sins, the heavenly court doesn't hold you responsible for sin until the age of 20. Now, Rashi has told us before that before the giving of the Torah, this is obviously before the giving of the Torah, the heavenly court doesn't hold you responsible for sins until the age of 100. But here, 
even though Sarah lived before the giving of the Torah, even according to the stricture, stricter standard that would apply later, meaning you only have 20 years of a grace period, Sarah was still that pure from sin when she was 100. So that's 120. And seven, that when she was 20, she was as beautiful as a seven-year-old, which some commentators explain like the complexion, like the skin of a seven-year-old is so pure, the complexion is so pure. When she was 20, she still had that pure, beautiful complexion. If you remember last week, when Sarah gets taken by Avimelech, she's about 89 years old. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, and still she got taken. So that was when, you know, she was, she was that beautiful still when she was 89. So uh, other commentators explain what does it mean when she was seven, as beautiful as a seven-year-old when she was 20, is that from age seven to 20 is when a woman's beauty develops and develops and develops until 20 when, like, it's a completion. After 20, it's downhill. But her beauty at seven was like at 20, meaning it was still growing more and more and more beautiful. Then the verse says these are the years of Sarah's life. So we're like, wait, wait a minute. We just heard when she was 20, she's as beautiful as seven. When she's 100, she's free as sin as 20. What does it mean now that these are the years of her life? What do we need that for? So Rashi says they were all equal for goodness, meaning this seemingly superfluous phrase is saying that her saintliness was maintained her entire life. Not just once she hit 100 and then it was downhill for the next 27 years. Every single day of all of her 127 years was equally perfect. Sarah died in Kiryas Arba, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Avram came to eulogize Sarah and to cry over her. Kiryas Arba is Hebron. Now, it's called Kiryas Arba, which means the city of four, because there were four giants who lived there. And that's one explanation. The other explanation is it was named after the four couples that were buried there. Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and Leah. It says Abraham Cain. Now, where did he come from? He was living in Hebron at this time. So where did he come? Sarah's in Hebron. He's in Hebron. And then it says he comes to Hebron to, to mourn her. So again, remember, he just had the, this test of the binding of Isaac. And after that test, he didn't go back home. Because he sort of knew that everyone sort of knew about it. And he didn't want, like, to talk. He wanted for the talk to die down. So instead of going back home to Hebron, he went to where he used to live, which he had moved away from 12 years before, which is Beersheba and Gror. And now, so he comes, he's in Beersheba, and right away he gets the news about Sarah. He goes now to Hebron to mourn for her. And then Rashi explains, as I said earlier, that why do we have this juxtaposition of the binding of Isaac and the death of Sarah, how Sarah's soul left her when she was hearing the, the news, how he almost, almost was killed and then was slaves, her soul away from her and she died. So, Avram rose up from the presence of his dead and spoke to the children of Ches, saying, I am an alien and a resident among you. Grant me a holding for a grave with you that I may bury my dead before me. So what does this mean, I'm an alien and I'm a resident? I mean, if you're an alien, if you're a stranger, you're not a resident. If you're a resident, you're not a stranger. So Rashi says there's two ways of looking at this. One way is simply, on one hand, I'm a stranger. I come from a different land, right? He wasn't born in Israel. He wasn't born in Hebron. But on the other hand, I've settled among you. Remember, he was 25 years in Hebron, and he was 26 years in Gerar in the land of the Plishtim and Beersheba, and then he was another 12 years in Hebron. By now, I'm a resident. 
another explanation of this is if you want to look at me as a stranger, no problem. I'm willing to spend a lot of money for this plot of land I want. But if you're not willing to do that, I'm going to be like a resident and take it by right because God promised me this land. This land is really mine. I'm just being nice and offering to pay for it. And I want a holding for a grave, a land holding for a cemetery, meaning I don't just want enough land to bury Sarah. I want cemetery land. I want to have a cemetery for um, the future, for all of these couples, of which the first one obviously was already buried there. There's a whole midrash that explains how Abraham stumbles, I mean, God made him stumble, across this cave in a cave, like a double cave, where he realized was where Adam and Eve were buried. And because of that, he already had in his head that I'm buying this land for our burial. This is the turtle of Adam and Eve. This is where we're going to be. Um, so the next verse, the children of faith answered Abraham saying, Hear us, my Lord. You're a prince of God in our midst. In the choices of our burial places, bury your dead. Any of us will not withhold his burial place from you from burying your dead. So Rashi explains, nobody's going to hold back. Nobody's going to not allow you to buy wherever you want. So then the next verse is, and Abraham rose up and bowed down to the members of the council, to the children of Christ. The next verse, he spoke to them saying, it is truly your will to bury my dead from before me. Speak to me, intercede for me for Ephron, the son of Tzohar. Um, so he's, your will, literally it's your will, I mean, literally, it means your soul here, but your will, your wish, intercede for me, ask, request for me. In other words, this burial plot that Abraham wanted because he knew how holy it was, because he knew Adam and Eve were buried there, was in the field, in the back of the field of this common man among these people named Ephron. Ephron didn't know that Adam and Eve were buried there. Ephron didn't know. Tim, it was this desolate cave that for some reason he had this intense fear of. And he never went there because he was very scared of it. Obviously, God didn't want commoners trespassing on Adam and Eve's burial. So he just had an enormous fear he never went there. Abraham once, as I said, stumbled across it, and I find the whole story in the Midrash, and realized what it was. Ephraim had no clue. But everybody knew that Abraham wanted it. So all the people where he lived, they had tremendous respect for him. They all stopped their work to come and, and comfort him for his loss of Sarah. So, of course, they're all assuming that Ephraim's going to very graciously turn this land over. So, Abraham continues, Let him grant me the cave of Machpelah, which is on the edge of his field. Let him grant it for me for full price in your midst as a holding for a grave. So it's called the cave of Machpelah. We call it Maras HaMachpelah, the cave of Machpelah. Machpelah means a doubling because it was like a lower floor and an upper floor on it, like a cave and then a lower cave. Or it's called Machpelah double because it was doubled with couples, meaning everyone that was buried there was a double, was a couple, Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah. And Avram stipulates, I'm going to pay him full price, meaning I'm not looking for a bargain. I'm not trying to bargain. I don't want any complaints later. I want to pay full price for this. So Ephron was sitting in the midst of the children of Chais, and Ephron the Chiti responded to Abraham in the hearing of the children of Chais. Paul came to the gate of his city saying, so now it says Ephron was sitting, and it's written effectively lacking a letter to teach us that on that day, the children of Chais appointed Ephron, who was just a regular nobody, 
to be an official over them because Abraham was so important. So since they knew that Abraham wanted something from Ephron, that would make Ephron important. For all who came to the gate of his city, because everybody stopped their work to come to comfort Abraham over Sarah. So Ephron speaks a lot in the end of this. He does nothing. He says, no, my Lord, hear me. I've given the field to you. As for the cave that's in it, I've given it to you. In the view of the children of my people, have I given it to you? Bury your dead. So Ephron is saying, oh, please, just take it. I don't want anything for it. So he says, no, my Lord, you don't have to buy it for money. I've given it to you. It's like everybody gave it to you. Forget it. Abram bowed down to the people of the land. And then the next verse, he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people, saying, if only you'd listen to me. I've given you the money for the field. Take it from me that I may bury my dead. In other words, Abram is saying, I don't want a present. I want to pay for it. This is, this is unequivocally land of the Jewish people, Hebron and Kiris Arba. We have in the Bible written how Abraham bought it. <laughs> I don't want to bargain. I don't want any, any uh, argument over this land. I want to pay for it. So Rosh explains, if only you'd listen to me, you're telling me to listen to you and take it without payment. I don't want it. I want you to listen to me, and I want to pay for it. And he's saying, he says in the past, I have given, when I've given, Abraham didn't give anything yet. He didn't tell him how much he wanted. But he's saying, I have it ready. I just want to give it to you already. So then Ephraim replied to Abraham, saying, my Lord, hear me, land worth 400 silver skull in between me and you. What is it? Bury your dead. What do you mean between me and you? Raj explains to me, we're such good friends. It's not, it's nothing. Forget about the 400 silver coins that really are the value of this. And just bury your dead. Now, obviously, this cave at the end of his field that was a worthless cave, it wasn't a land you could use for what people value, which was like farming or something, was not worth 400 pieces of silver. But that was how Ephraim was saying, well, if you really want to pay me, I actually want an exorbitant amount of money for it. He really, like, milked him for it. So the next verse says, Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham went out to Ephron the money that he had mentioned in the hearing of the children of Ches, 400 silver shalom in negotiable currency. So it says that he's weighing out to Ephron, the way the verse is spelled, Ephron's name is without a vav. Why? Because Ephron, like, sort of lost credit now in our eyes. Because Ephron is the example of someone who speaks a lot and doesn't even do a little. Because here he said to Abraham, ah, take it for free. When Abraham insisted on paying him, if you really want to give it for free and someone asks to pay, you say, fine, and give, you know, a modest price. The price, maybe scale it down a little because you really feel bad taking the money. In the end, when Ephron was pressed to take money, so to speak, he asked for an exorbitant amount of money, 400 coins and very high double coins, much, much more than the land was worth. So he spoke a lot and didn't even, didn't even do a little. Classical example, we, of course, strive for the opposite. Good luck.